and welcome to the podcast for the Foundation for Science and Technology. I'm Gavin Costigan and this week we're talking about the government's 2.4% target for R&D. To discuss that with me is Dr. Sarah Main, Director of the Campaign for Science and Engineering. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, it's lovely to be here. Can we start just putting this 2.4% target in a little bit of context? What level are we at now in the UK and how does that compare with other main competitor countries? Well, as you know, Gavin, the UK has a fantastic science base, fantastic science and engineering activity, and it's done on a really kind of remarkably modest budget compared to other countries internationally. So the government has set a target which is ambitious, which is will involve at least doubling the current level of investment in R&D, um, both public and private, over the next 10 years. And if we get there, that will put us on a par with other international comparable research intensive countries, such as the USA, Germany, Japan, and, and a number of others. But of course, that it will put us on a par with where they are now. It may be that they go further and faster over the next 10 years and further increase their research investment over that time. We'll have to see what they do. Focusing on the what the UK does, you, you talked in your remarks just then about increasing both public and private sector R&D. Thinking about the public sector side of this for the moment, what are the key balances and choices that the government has to make? Well, for many years, I think we have thought about the decisions that government makes about research investment in terms of what that can do for the science and research community. So we might discuss the dual funding mechanism and how much money is put towards different sort of types of research activity, more exploratory and more applied and towards the development end. And that is really so much as to say that's what the government can do to enhance and grow the science base in the UK. But I think what's sort of very noticeable about the way that science investment is positioned at the moment is that I think government is looking at it, at its, at its investment choices as a way to further its, its broader national agenda. So at the moment, the Prime Minister is keen on the levelling up agenda and he's keen on global Britain as, as we leave the EU. So I think the government is seeing the UK science base as one of the tools in its box that it can deploy to further those national level goals. So that means that there are a number of choices facing the government about how it, how it deploys this investment towards the 2.4% target. And one of the things we at um, Case the Campaign for Science and Engineering have, have talked about quite a bit for the past few years is the importance of setting out the vision of what the government wants to achieve with this huge push on research investment over the next 10 years. And I think there's a few reasons why that vision is so important. I mean, one is that it enables you to then make choices about the strategies you might follow to achieve it. And the second is that it, it can motivate people to you know, bring their energy and, and to kind of coalesce their activities behind achieving that vision. Yeah, I think there's lots of choices that face government. I'd like to see them set out really as clearly as possible the different goals that they want to achieve with this huge budgetary increase. Well, certainly one of the things you mentioned was the levelling up agenda, which is a major part of the industrial strategy. There's been a, a feeling that there's a choice 
between levelling up between place, between ensuring that all parts of the UK effectively get some part of the pie and an emphasis on excellence and funding the best research wherever it happens to be, which can often increase the very best universities and the funding they have, perhaps at the expense of, of the rest. How does the government try and achieve a balance between these two aims, both of which are perfectly legitimate? Because of what I've just said about the the way that I think R&D is placed more centrally in government's thinking, I think this is quite a new area of thinking for government in terms of its science investment decisions. So historically, I think, you know, the UK has performed remarkably well by following a set of principles about science investment, which really follow the excellence of of scientific proposals and scientific output as a way of deciding where future investment should go. Now there are additional goals and responsibilities are being placed before the science community in terms of what the nation and the government expects in return for that science investment. And as you've said, the levelling up agenda, the the issue of prosperity um, being delivered in in a more kind of equitable and balanced way across the UK is one of those. Now, just to go back to the scale of the increase that we're talking about, to put it in context, the scale is so big and, and it is of a scale that hasn't been achieved for decades and decades that it should be the case that there is room to do more than one thing within this budgetary envelope. So I think that adding a stream of activity in which place agenda, levelling up agenda is pursued in, in a kind of very explicit way should you know should be something that's achievable within within this envelope of growth so one of the things about leveling up agenda as we come out of the eu is that the uk will no longer have access to eu structural funds but it also won't be bound by state aid rules and will have an opportunity to make some of those regional investments itself so there's a potential of pulling together things that are designed more for regional development, things that are designed more for R&D. But it throws up the question of the balance between decisions taken centrally and decisions taken regionally. And how do you think that balance should be made when it comes to some of these future R&D investments? Many other minds than ours will try and tackle this over the coming (laughs) years. We at CASE have been doing work for just over a year, year and a half, with, with this question certainly at the heart of it. So we've tried to engage civic leaders, leaders in local authorities, in mayor's office, in enterprise bodies, in conversations, in roundtable discussions with us and our member organisations in different regions across the UK. So bringing together business and academic research leaders and charity research leaders to have conversations about how research and innovation in local areas, regions, in devolved nations can contribute to the economic growth of those areas. Well, what certainly, I mean, to your specific question, which is, you know, how do you balance and integrate this sort of national and, and regional decision making? I think it came out as clear to us that the, there are very different levers available for national and regional decision making. And some of the frustration I think that we heard at a, at a local and regional level was that there are not very many kind of very powerful or, or tangible level, levers at their disposal in this area. So certainly they can convene, um, they can convene discussion and they can, you know, probably incentivize and motivate. But um, I think there was a frustration about the 
the fact that that many powers are still held at a national level and aren't devolved that far that, that one might use to you know perhaps give a little bit more teeth to some of those levers. Now well, I think we'll see where that goes because of course you know the government has an R&D place strategy in development um, sure. and it's, it's putting money behind that so it looks like there will be money available to pursue some of these goals you know and I think we've yet to see what kind of rules around the use of that money will be and who will be allowed to decide how and where it's used but you know it could be that I think I think there is room for some greater sharing or devolvement of powers into a regional level to make use of some of that money that could be really interesting but I mean one of the other things that we found from those conversations is that I think R&D you know research and innovation as part of a local civic agenda is still quite a kind of new emerging idea for many of the civic bodies that we spoke to I mean in some areas it's already well developed and quite strong but in some areas I think research and innovation is not yet central to their thinking about their local region and its prosperity. From what you're saying, actually, it throws up a a wider question of structures for regional support. And obviously, we used to have regional development agencies, we no longer have those. In England, at least, we've had local enterprise partnerships, some of which have been very successful, some of which have been less successful. And we've had some elements of devolution for sort of greater Manchester and other large cities. So presumably, if we get some of those structures working and working better, then investment in R&D can be integrated in other types of investment. Yeah. And I I think from what we've observed so far, I think what, you know, what might be really useful is just to have a more active presence of R&D stakeholders in those regional economic conversations. And I think that that's likely to vary quite widely at the moment. But, you know, whether a mayor's office, whether a local authority, you know, in their sort of committee and um, meetings about planning for regional investment, you know, what I can imagine they could ask themselves, you know, what, where is the research and innovation voice in those conversations? And um, my sense is from our initial work that that it could just be a little bit more central and prominent um, and that could really help to coordinate um, the activities that, that many universities and businesses do already with the civic sort of planning and prosperity agenda. So one of the other angles to the 2.4% agenda and one of the things the government's going to have to decide is the balance of funding between what you might call the research part and the development part and I know all my career people have bemoaned rightly or wrongly that the UK is really good at fundamental research and less good at exploiting that research. Should we spend more money at the higher technology readiness levels? Is this the opportunity to actually put a lot more money into D rather than R? You know, you get different answers to that depending on who you ask. So, (laughs) But but you're asking me. And and I suppose, you know, one of the great privileges of of my role at uh, cases that I do get to speak with our members and stakeholders that are right across that whole spectrum of science and engineering. So yeah, we, I do speak to businesses that are very much at the far sort of D end and and you know and taking taking their work very much to market, um, and those are, that are right at the exploratory innovation end. Of course, everyone might want a bit more money for their type of activity, but I think what's important is to look across the balance across the UK as a whole. One of the parliamentary select committee for science and technology have had had a look at balance and effectiveness of funding quite recently, and we submitted some data analysis into that. And 
you can see just through looking at publicly available data on, on what's called in the Frascati definitions, basic applied and experimental development of, of research. You can see where those activities lie across the whole spectrum. And of public investment in science, just looking at public investment rather than private, the research councils have, have quite a, a sort of particular profile and um, universities have a particular profile but the government departments on the whole are sort of notable by having very much more experimental development classed research than in other areas so I think what I took from that is that we need to be careful kind of not to forget about some of the areas of the research landscape that perhaps aren't always front of mind you know there are a lot of high volume and of of work of high value going on across government departments that is quite far at one end and of course the, the government's own research institutions as well as well as the, the research councils and and um, the sort of QR funding that, that goes on through universities so it occurred to me looking at that that then with an uplift in funding one of the important questions will be how that money is distributed across those different actors in, sure. in the um, research funding space. I mean, were it all to go into one institution that tends to work in, in one particular sort of um, window of that TRL level, then I think that could have a, an, un, an unbalancing effect. But if, it, if people look across that whole spectrum and make sure that there is a platform for growth and provision of investment for growth across those different activities I think will retain that balance which is really important because one of the things I think certainly we found at Case and I'm, I'm sure you find as well at, at the foundation is that both the quality and breadth together of the UK science base is a real asset globally and, and it's a unique asset there, there are not many countries that perform at such a high level as we do across such a spectrum of science um, and engineering activity and across those TRL levels so you know I think that as we're pushing for growth over the next decade and the contribution of research and innovation to the UK economy if we do it with breadth and, and sort of retaining that that breadth and quality of breadth I think that that will leave us in a, in a very strong place as a you know, a global, you know, a global player and partner of choice. So, so far, we've been thinking about the, the public sector element of the 2.4% target. Obviously, a key part of this is to also increase private sector R&D. Much of current private sector R&D actually comes from foreign direct investment, FDI. What does the government need to do to increase private sector R&D? Is it more FDI? Is it more growing UK investment in itself? Is it a bit of both? What's the what's the strategy? This is this is going to be a really crucial question, and of course, it's always an important question for government how we make the UK as attractive as, as possible to foreign direct investment. And I think a light will be shone on that even more brightly, both with our exit from the European Union and and the sort of positioning of the UK in its in a, a sort of new set of global relationships and also as we look you know hopefully transition through this phase of the global impact of coronavirus on health but also on economies and and the UK looks to sort of you know recover from this situation I think you know this is a really critical question about how can the UK environment for science and engineering be tuned to be high performing but also attractive to global research organizations that that 
can choose where in the world they want to locate. Why should why should they locate here? And we've certainly spent a lot of time listening to what companies have to say and thinking about that and and doing so in a way to support the the government's efforts on the 2.4% agenda. We did a lot of consultation with with companies that we work with over the last couple of years. One of the most reassuring things that they say that comes through most strongly, actually, is that what they want to make sure the government does is to continue to invest in public research and innovation, because that is really one of the the prime attractors for businesses that are research-led to locate here. So they want to ensure that the publicly funded science research and innovation in the UK is as strong and robust as possible so they want to see that that continued strong public investment and sustained with both skills and infrastructure as a platform for growth and then I think on top of that there are some messages that we hear where you know the UK offering to businesses could be tuned a little to incentivize private R&D investment. Some of those you know some of these are easy to say but hard to do you know but but I think they're all quite simple in concept so one of the first challenges is actually the packaging of the offer and uh, and we heard from both large scale multinational businesses and SMEs that the UK provision to to support innovation in businesses is actually pretty good it's just difficult to find and so the message that we heard was that that the package of support could be made more simple and easier to find and to navigate for for businesses uh, and tuned to their business needs in terms of timeliness and responsiveness. So just as an example, after we heard this, we, we looked at some months ago to just to search government websites for innovation packages of support for businesses. And I think we spent a couple of hours on it and found about 20 different websites that were not yeah. linked to each other. Now, this is, you know, it's pretty simple stuff to fix, but I think actually makes a big difference. We, you know, we heard from entrepreneurs that had come here as, as kind of sole, sole entrepreneurs that it took them months and months and months to find the, the kind of support they needed. And we heard from large scale multinationals that in some countries they are, provided with a, a, you know, basically an account manager, a person who walks them through the process and, and helps them find the different people and sources of support. And, and these things make a really big difference. So, so that was an important message. Another important message about what government could do is to use the power of government procurement and, and a culture of innovation to help adopt innovation faster. Now, you know, again, this isn't a new idea and it has been talked about before, but I think it it's important to realise how powerful it is. And actually, under the current Prime Minister and current Number 10 administration, they have talked about this um, before, you know, in recent months, talked about a culture of innovation throughout government, which I think, you know, could could be quite transformational, both for our sort of SME environment, you know, allowing SMEs to do some of the work that that, um, government has to commission and assuring larger companies that this is an innovative um, environment in which they would place themselves. And, you know, just lastly, I think we heard about the SME and startup environment, that there are really good examples of practice which we could adopt here, which might help them in that kind of grow on phase. So there are examples in the States where as innovative companies move from being an idea in someone's head to, you know, early phase exploration to being somewhere that might need space and might need a roof over their heads before they become a business, that that kind of 
part of the growth curve of, of research intensive small businesses could be supported a little bit letter, better. And there are models for that, like um, research hotels, innovation hotels type structures mm. in the States. And, and there is some of that going on in the UK at the moment. I think there's just probably capacity for more. But ultimately, one of the most important things the government can do is set out a long term plan. Um, sure. And so we do have now the commitment to the 22 billion over five years. That's fantastic. The more the government can signal its intent and put down kind of concrete markers and of that in a plan the the more it will encourage businesses to be assured that they can make their long-term investment plans in line with that earlier on in our discussion you mentioned that the 2.4 percent level was not something that the uk had achieved for many many decades which is true but it's not the first time that the government set itself an ambition of getting there Previous Labour government in 2004 had a 10-year science and innovation investment framework, which aimed to get to, in this case, 2.5%. So what have we learned from previous attempts to try and raise our level of R&D? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's it's really valuable to look back at, at past attempts and also to look at attempts that have been made in other countries. With regard to that particular attempt in the mid-2000s, you know, we've looked back at what data there is on R&D investment over that time. And there's a couple of noticeable things. At the time, I think it, it was said by the business community that, that more could have been done at that time to engage the business community in that plan. So there was a sense from some that it was a plan devised by government and announced with not as much business involvement as there might have been in how that plan was going to be executed. That I think, you know, we can see this time round considerable effort has been put in to, you know, integrating business views in into this plan and, and certainly into also into the industrial strategy as was launched under Theresa May. So that's positive. Another thing we pick up from that example is what happens to government departmental investment in R&D. And at that time, and John Kingman has talked about this himself, the Treasury were pumping money into the science budget held by Bayes to achieve this target. And almost at the same time, government departments were reducing their R&D expenditure. You can now look at the data and see that, you know, it it fell by about a third across many government departments over over a number of years. And so what what was being um, given with one hand was being taken away with the other. And that reinforces the importance of, you know, this current attempt, the current 2.4% attempt being a real cross-government effort. And we get the sense, we kind of pick up from messages we hear about, you know, there being cross-cabinet consensus for, for the 22 billion announcement. You get a sense of enthusiasm across the cabinet, but we know that in difficult times, you know, uh, it can be hard to retain that enthusiasm. So I think it is really vitally important that at, at the highest level of government, each government department is thinking about and is accountable for what it can do to help make the UK's economy a more research and innovation intensive economy. And that is a much broader goal than can just be owned by Bayes and by UKRI. Um, it, it should does need to be a real cross-government effort. Yeah. And of course, the final thing that happens in that 10-year plan that started in 2004 was the financial crash of 2007-2008. So <laughs> um, that happened and probably more than anything had a, had a, had a huge impact. 
these things do happen and it could be that in this decade and possibly even in this year we we see you know big economic um waves like that uh, that that might have an impact on on the current goal so i was going to ask you about the current year and just to sort of finish this off obviously it's a 10-year program the government set but but what are the key priorities over the next 12 months? And I have to sort of uh, allow the government a little bit of wiggle room on the basis. There's a bit of a virus going around and there are some other priorities. But just sort of thinking as we come out of some of the work on coronavirus, what are the, the key things the government needs to do over the coming months to, to sort of get and keep itself on track for this? Number one, I think that establishing and, and communicating the vision for this goal and the plan for this goal will be a critical first step. And the, the science minister, uh, Amanda Soloway, no doubt will achieve that. But it must be noted that the last few science ministers have said that they would publish a plan for this 2.4% target, and it hasn't been published yet. Um, I'm sure there are many reasons behind that. But it, it is so important to give confidence, to give confidence to the UK's domestic science um, community, but also to the international science community to invest and to come here. So I think number one vision, what the government wants, thinks can be achieved, um, and number two, the plan. And within that vision piece, I think that certainly I would connect that to the government's levelling up agenda and to its Global Britain agenda. And I think that this uplift can contribute to both of those. Yeah, in a post-coronavirus, you know, possible economic recovery world, I think it will only be even more important to think about how investment decisions about research and innovation can lead to improvements in quality of life and improvements in prosperity for everybody across the UK, because we may find in that recovery phase that that some of the differences we see across the country become exacerbated and, and you know, even greater than, than they have been. So I think if we are going to make a big push to change the UK's economy to become more innovative, it needs to work for people and it needs to work for everybody and to have a tangible benefit that people feel over time. And that might be because there are opportunities for them to enter the research and innovation workforce or, or space in some way. But I think it is much more than that. It's not just that. It is to enable people to benefit from the outputs of innovation to, you know, have better public services that are delivered in a more kind of innovative and efficient way. It is for people to feel the benefits of research on their environment, their health, their well-being and, you know, their, their, their lives. And I think importantly, it, it is to make sure that everybody feels that they have a stake and they have a say in the conversation about the direction of travel, of research and innovation and how it is applied to our lives. So I think those are really important things to achieve at the end of the 10-year program and therefore in the next year or two I think we and the government need to think about how you set set about making sure that you can achieve those things at the end of 10 years now so putting in place the complementary policies of complementary programs that might enable that to happen um, about you know societal public in engagement um, in a research and innovation agenda um, infrastructure so thinking about how civic infrastructure like you know transport and, and city planning can help develop research and innovation but help make sure that more people can access it and participate in it and of course thinking about an education and skills plan for talent that goes alongside a research and innovation investment plan that's an exciting vision we'll have to see how it pans out over the next few years dr sarah main thank you very much for joining me thank you for having me
You're listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. You can find us on soundcloud.com, on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you found this podcast. Or you can check out further details about the Foundation at www.foundation.org.uk.